And there has been an equally drastic fall off in the use of humour over the last 20 years. And, and our industry feels that's maybe beneath them or it feels it's inappropriate. They're worried about using humour because you can say the wrong thing. Hey there, James here, and you're listening to the Own the Moment podcast, the show where we explore the complex and always evolving landscape of marketing, advertising, and branding, and try to get to the bottom of what it means to be a truly memorable brand. The Own the Moment podcast is brought to you by Como Technologies, a self-service, complete customer engagement platform that helps you cut through the noise to truly connect with your customers and retain and grow those connections over time. With Como, you can build and deploy new campaigns, activations, promotions, and programs in days, not months. And our software is used by some of the world's biggest consumer brands from Heineken to Budget, Goodman Fielder, Foxtel, JLL, Williams Racing, and McDonald's. Learn more at Como.tech. Today's guest is Andy Nan, one of the most respected and awarded brand strategists in the world. Andy has been named the top brand strategist in the UK by Campaign Magazine three years in a row and has won an astonishing 24 IPA Effectiveness Awards. His list of achievements quite literally goes on and on and on. Andy co-founded the agency Lucky Generals, whose clients include the likes of Amazon, Virgin Atlantic and Yorkshire Tea. Andy and I had a fascinating discussion around the role of brand purpose in advertising, whether or not they'd work with a fossil fuels company, and why he thinks advertising needs to rid themselves of the idea that it's vulgar to sell. Andy is simply one of the most engaging and clever people I've spoken to, so this is a must listen for anyone in marketing, advertising, or the creative industry. I hope you enjoy the show. Uh, Andy Nan, thank you so much for being on the show. Cheers, thanks. I'm really glad to be here. First question, um, Andy, obviously this week, you know, my LinkedIn feed is exploding with people in Cannes. Are you in Cannes? And if not, why not? Uh, I'm not in Cannes. I, I go on and off to Cannes, so I don't have a huge, you know, it has its issues, but I think it also has its benefits as well. The actual real reason, so don't feel too sorry for me not being in Cannes, is that we've we've just celebrated our 10th birthday and we took everyone in the agency to Italy last week, you know, so 100 people from uh, the UK, but also from our New York office, um, so we have, uh, I think our livers have, have uh, been exhausted, <laughs> all our brain cells um, talking about, you know, the, the future and what we're going to be doing. We've done it all ourselves sort of thing. So um, I think I'm, I think I and everyone else is a bit spent in terms of going for more um, fun in the sun. Andy, I'm so happy to have you on the show. You're obviously one of the most respected and well-awarded strategists in the world. Um, just to uh, rattle off a, f- a couple of your accomplishments, you've been named the top brand strategist in the UK by campaign three years in a row. You've won something crazy like 24 IPA Effectiveness Awards. The, the list quite literally goes on and on. Um, Andy, what makes you so good at your job? Oh, what a horrible question to um, <laughs> start me with. I, mean, it is, I, thought, I thought you might not like that one. It is that sort of cliche, I'm afraid, where you... It's other people. You surround yourself by really good people and then you will end up looking good. So if you can, um, I guess if I've done anything, it's sort of helped to craft a team. Now, I'm very lucky because I've got two amazing partners that I've worked with for a long, long time. I mean, best part of 20 years, um, and Helen Calcraft and Danny Brute-Taylor. And then together we built an amazing team around ourselves, got great clients. You know, when you run your own agency, you can choose, you know, who you work with. So we turned down lots of brands and people that we wouldn't, you know, work as well with and so when you do all of those things when you cultivate uh you create your own little work atmosphere that where you can 
do all your best stuff. You're very fortunate to be able to do that. I appreciate that a lot of people don't have that freedom to do it. But if you do, you end up looking good because you're sort of like maximizing all the conditions for you to succeed. So mm. I think I think that's um, a big part of it. It's, it's uh, lots of other really good people. <laughs> I'll take the focus off you for a moment because I know that's a, uh, like you said, that's an awkward and uh, hard thing to do. But what makes a good strategist then? Someone, you know, who is very good at that role, you know, what are the elements? What's the sort of, um, what are the ingredients to being really good at strategy? I think first and foremost, it is uh, curiosity about people and human beings and sort of what makes them tick. There's there's not no such thing as a boring brief. I always hate that when people say the briefs are a bit boring. I've worked on things like tax. I've worked on that for like about 10 years. Like how do you get people to do tax returns? It's really interesting because it's all about, you know, human nature and our desire to procrastinate and our relationship with authority and with technology and all sorts of like bigger sort of things. So, you know, I've worked on business to business briefs, which are supposed to be boring, but actually like it's really interesting about, you know, internal company politics. We, we imagine that people buy, you know, huge um, contracts in the business sector on the basis of pure logic and price and sort of rational spit. It's the absolute opposite. It's probably more emotional, you know, because people are worried about their careers and what their boss thinks and, you know, um, all sorts of other sort of um, very emotional things. Um, so I, I find, first and foremost, a good planners are people who can find something really interesting and big and cultural and human and emotional, uh, even in what look like quite um, humdrum sort of, sectors and then i think the other big thing that um is uh, a lot easier said than done is keeping things simple i'm a great believer in simple strategy and where i think a lot of strategists go wrong is that they overcomplicate things and overthink things and, and make things terribly profound when they don't need to be now, i'm all about action and simplicity and turn it into something that can sort of um, be used Mm, it's interesting. I, I have a question I want to ask in a little bit about technology, which I've heard you talking about before in that regard of um, simplicity. One of the things I've heard you say is, you know, it's sort of all about the insight and, you know, to, to your point around tax and, you know, finding the sort of the interesting insight that that maybe leads to some sort of, you know, creative breakthrough. How do you go about finding insight? You, I think the important thing is not to stress out about it because it can sound like a terrifying word that you've got to come up with some uh, extraordinary revelation that no one has ever ever come up with ever before um or or as i say something so profound that 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 people's you know heads will explode sort of thing and you, you know, so people set such a high bar and i think it can be simpler than that sometimes and they, and insights can come from everywhere they don't have to come from consumers for instance sometimes you get great insight by doing a factory tour like you you know walking around the the offices or the factory of Yorkshire tea and seeing one of our planners seeing a sort of a, a sign on the wall, a poster sort of saying we do things proper. Okay, that's interesting. That wasn't a constru- that wasn't from a focus group. That was from a factory wall. That's kind of interesting because it tells you what about you know the culture of that sort of company. So it can be from company culture. It can be from you know people. It can be from society at large and you know, culture more generally rather than my own specific target audience. Um, it can be from social media. It can be a chance conversation. I, th- I think I'm a big believer in insights from all sorts of places, not just from conventional research, although they can obviously come from that place too. That's very interesting. And like it sort of I get this sense almost that insight can be sort of uncovered rather than manufactured. It's sort of they're there. Uh, you just need to sort of stumble upon them. Yeah, you usually think that is the case. If they're it's a bit like comedians who use insight um really well, don't they? You know, like when I when a when a comedian says something that is 
that we all nod our heads at and go, oh my God, that is so true, I do that. Sort of the best jokes are often things that we we immediately get and think, oh my God, that is so true. But I've never heard anyone voice that before. So that's what makes it fresh and interesting. It's a kind of duality between a truth, but sort of, um, I've never heard it quite sort of, you, you feel seen sort of thing. You think, oh my God, that is me. And I think a lot of good advertising, you know, good, a lot of brand building um, does that as well. Mm, that's fascinating. And I just want to sort of get into the weeds for a moment on Yorkshire Tea. I think, you know, uh, researching you and your background, and that's obviously one of the, I guess, you know, potentially, I don't know if you would agree, but most successful pieces of work you've worked on. Well, you know, what is it about an insight like proper that is so, or I guess I was about to say profound, maybe it's not that it's profound, but that it led to such great work. How can something as sort of simple sounding as, you know, they do things proper, help them go from, you know, number three to number one in the market in, in a fairly short amount of time? How, how do you use that then to create such success? This is a good example of that. This is something I've got absolutely literally nothing to do with. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I preside over the agency that's, that's done it, but and there's a great team of people who've, who have done this, so I, I mustn't uh, claim any responsibility here. But the team there, you know, we, we did a pitch, you know, which is always a bit of an odd sort of artificial sort of exercise. And the, the company had done things with proper before because it's part of their, you know, they, they've got a very Yorkshire, it's very sort of a Yorkshire word, that isn't it? We do things proper. But but hadn't quite made it work, and and so when um, our team were walking around the factory, that what was interesting was that yes, they make tea properly as you would expect, and they make very they've got very high standards when it comes to quality control, and they use the best ingredients from the best places and all that kind of stuff. So it's quite boring that though um, was their observation, and they couldn't really make anything very interesting out of it. And what what was the big unlock was again just spending time up there in Harrogate and going into the reception, they, they noticed that the receptionists were amazing. Like, God, they, these are like the best receptionists that they'd, that anyone had ever, you know, experienced in all these years of advertising. And, you know, people like the couriers or the, you know, the delivery people just seemed like super efficient and brilliant. And the, you know, at, at every level, the, the people there just seemed to be incredibly warm, friendly, very good at the jobs. And, and, and the sort of, unlock there was to think maybe that's more interesting because if you rather than bang on about how proper our tea making processes are which is a bit boring if we say we do everything proper you know from the hold music you know um to the the way we interview people to the way that we deliver the product or whatever it is then just think how how proper the tea must be you know but if they put that much attention to that sort of stuff just think how much attention they put into the tea and that became the big unlock. So do, rather than doing sort of very boring sort of product stuff, you know, then and then you then you obviously have to exaggerate it and sort of bring it to life. Uh, and and the big unlock there was creatively to use, you know, Yorkshire heroes. People like Parky would be doing doing the interview, and Sean Bean would be doing the company pep talk, and um, you know, lot, lots of other sort of uh, you know greats uh, would be be doing all sorts of you know the Brownlee brothers would be doing the. Uh, the, the, couriering the products in Patrick Stewart would be doing the leaving speech you know you just get the best person in the world to do whatever that job was and wow if they put that much attention into that job think how much attention they put into the team and it's, it's been phenomenal as you say it's you know taking them from a very distant third to um, a very 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 clear first in a market that people kind of assumed would never change because the the top two positions had been sewn up for decades really it's fascinating. And you've said online that you really want to buck the trend of obsession in your industry with technology. What should I make of that? And what mistakes are brands and marketing uh, teams making when they obsess over technology? 
It's putting technology first thing. I mean, obviously, we, we are very technologically, if I can say that word, savvy. And, you know, some of our, you know, we work with Amazon. We've worked with Amazon almost from the beginning. And it's been a, such a privilege to learn from them. Um, we work with people like TikTok. You know, we work with Zoopla, all sorts of um, brands that use technology in various ways. But but what I've learned from them and other great brands is that the technology is the servant of human beings. You know, we don't, they don't start with any. And Jeff Bezos is a great example of this. When every year, and he's less involved now, but when when analysts used to ask him every year, what is gonna, what's the big tech change this year? He would always say, I'm not really interested in what the big tech change is. I'm interested in the things that don't change about human nature. People are always gonna want things cheaper, faster, more efficiently, more personalized, all those sort of things. And then I start from that premise about understanding people. That's what I want Amazon to be, he always used to say, the most customer-centric company in the world, not the most technologically clever brand in the world, but the most customer-centric brand in the world. And then, of course, we will use all our amazing technology, which they do have at Amazon. And I feel like that is, that's how they've got so, so unbelievably um, you know, successful. It's not just because of the tech, it's because of their relentless interest in people. And and I think at the moment, you know, where, where we make a mistake as an industry is, you know, uh, obviously at the moment, artificial intelligence is on everyone's lips. You know, about six months ago, it was, you know, the metaverse. And and it's sort of ridiculous, isn't it? How metaverse f- for about a month was everything, wasn't it? And, and then it's just withered and everyone's moved on to the next thing. And it's a bit like when Second Life, you know, was sort of um, a thing and everyone is opening up in Second Life. And, and there's no reason to do it. So I, I think artificial intelligence is going to massively, you know, revolutionise all sorts of aspects of industry. But but let's start with people and their needs first. Before you even ask the question, the answer becomes, you know, let's do an AI idea. Well, yeah, why? Let's let's think of what we're doing first, and then oh, that that could be an interesting answer to it by using AIs. Well, you know, tools and tactics change, and you know, fundamentals don't. I think that that's yeah, that's a, a great way to put it. You wrote an article recently, Andy, where you spoke about too many ideas have no connection with consumers. What did you mean by that? Maybe a little bit of what I've just said there. Maybe, you know, people starting with technology for the sake of it and and not really starting with people. I think the other thing more recently has been, you know, there's just I think there's a divergence of creative standards from what ordinary people like and appreciate and what works. To, to what we like in our own industry. It's always been there. Obviously, there's always a bit of a tension between um, the industry making stuff for its own enjoyment. But but I think there's usually been quite a big crossover, and I think that crossover is less and less. Now, if you take the use of humour, for instance, you look at every statistic from all around the world, there is a massive preference amongst ordinary people for funny communications. Probably even more so now that, you know, in the last couple of years when times have been a bit grim. Um, and there has been an equally drastic fall off in the use of humour over the last 20 years. And, and our industry doesn't feel like, you know, it feels that's maybe beneath them or it feels it's inappropriate. They're worried about using humour because you can say the wrong thing. That's one example of where the stuff that is going to get you talked about down the pub or at the school gates, a lot of the time is not reflected in the work that wins loads of awards at, you know, Cannes or various other places. Yeah, I had um, Orlando Wood on a couple of weeks ago, and of course, we dug into that whole idea of left and, and right brain advertising, which I think, you know, captures a lot of what you're saying. And I think just one of the anecdotal things we spoke about on that show was, you know, if you think back to a lot of the sort of great ads of the 90s, you know, especially on TV, I mean, especially in Australia, they were, you know, they were funny, they were regional, they were contextually sort of rich and interesting. And yeah, I think, you know, I think Orlando and Ian, obviously, where a lot of that comes from, is completely right that we've we've definitely seen a, a move away from that. You know, which I think is really sad because, 
you know, it's obviously less effective and less memorable. So it's sort of strange to see it happening. But I, I don't know what your take is, Andy, but I, I sense a little bit of a potential fork in the road or maybe a turning point or, you know, I, 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 I hear it being talked about a lot more in it anyway. So I think that is right. I think it's just become so noticeable. And I think during, you know, the, the kind of very odd years that we've had, the lockdown and COVID and all that kind of sort of stuff, it became more more pronounced and people sort of talked themselves into this kind of crazy logic in my mind that, ah, but now things are, times are really tough now and people are sort of, you know, have got very real problems on their hands. Of course they do. And therefore we must we must be even more sombre and serious than usual. And do you remember that moment where everyone started doing exactly the same ad with tinkly piano music in the background and <laughs> sad voices saying in, in, right. in these unprecedented times? Unprecedented, yeah. yeah. Uh, it's now more than ever, it's important, blah, 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 mm. blah. People didn't want that, you know, because um, actually you, you more than ever during times that are tough, you kind of want someone to raise a smile, obviously appropriately. Sure. That's what we did with Yorkshire Tea. We did, we did funny things all the way through lockdown. You know, we did, you know, of course you've got to be sensitive and not do anything that's crassly, you know, in, no, not in keeping with the times. But, oh my God, people want to laugh. And the, the best thing we did during that whole period, it didn't cost a lot of money, but we, when everyone was going back into the office and they were worried about making a mm. tea, um, we created a, a socially distanced teapot with a ridiculously <laughs> long spout. It was a stupid idea. Obviously, the whole point was that this doesn't work, but we're just going to have to figure this out sort of thing. But And then we showed people sort of twitting about in the office with uh, this long teapot. And and people absolutely loved it because it was rather than us all being, it sort of broke the ice and sort of, we, yes, we were all a bit anxious about going into the office and the hygiene aspects of making a cup of for our mates and all the rest of it. But the, the British way in particular, I think, is to laugh about those things. Yeah, more brands like that, I think, hopefully. Yeah, no, and like you say, hopefully we're on the sort of uh, on the precipice of a, you know, maybe a little bit of a reset there. That's what I hope. I hope that after that sort of very odd time, now as we come out the other side, that people are thinking, right, well, surely this is now the time for you know the the sea's got to change the other way. I think. Yeah, it's interesting though because it does, you know, feel like we are in a sort of interesting time where, you know, I'm curious to get your take on sort of, you know, brand purpose, impact advertising. Obviously, you know, Bud Light has been, I guess, one of the biggest stories in our industry over the last few months. And I think what's interesting about that, I'm curious to get your take on it, but, you know, you know, I remember I spoke to one industry person just as that story was breaking and she said, you know, no, you know, I, I don't think this means anything. We've seen this before. These things blow over. Now, a couple of months on, you know, we've seen sort of sustained revenue loss. Um, are we in like a new era, Andy, in that sense? You know, are we in a sort of, you know, I don't know, is the polarization that we've seen in politics, is that now bleeding over into like every aspect of our consumer patterns? Or, or was this always the case? What's your take on on that story? Yeah, polarization is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because the world is more polarized. Now, I think, you know, this, this is an example, this whole debate really become polarized between, you know, there's some advocates that say your purpose should be in everything, you know, absolutely, you know, fanatical about everything should have a purpose. And then there's other people who decry it and say it's absolutely ridiculous, you know, um, forget it. Like a lot of these things, I'm afraid the truth is somewhere in, in the middle. You know, we, we work with the co-op. I mean, for 175 years, they've been helping people and they have got a purpose to make the world a better place. We work with, um, you know, the Guardian. We work with the Labour Party. Um, you know, we work with Virgin Atlantic. You know, and all these brands have have got purpose at their heart and that they're set up to work in a different way and they've got a different belief system, a different culture, and they walk the walk. That's the important thing. 
and 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 that's part of the reason why you buy those brands. Like you can get cheaper veg than somewhere else than the co-op sort of thing. Um, but you know, some of the money's going to help the community and all the rest of it. And so purpose can be phenomenally helpful if it truly reflects what organization you are and is provides a re- motivating reason for you to buy this particular brand. You you can't talk about the Guardian without uh, sort of uh, championing its wider role in society. It's not just an ordinary newspaper. It's a completely different beast sort of thing. Um, and you can't talk about the co-op without sort of reflecting that. So there's, if that is your general organizational truth, go for it. If you're just sort of sticking it on as a little sticker, like that's where Bud Light came unstuck, didn't they? It was a very shallow marketing exercise, perhaps well-meaning. Then it's so flimsy, and then it sort of falls apart, and then they retreated very quickly out of it, and they just dropped it, so there was no commitment really there. So it was almost the worst of both worlds. They were flimsy in their sort of support of the cause, and they probably ended up you know, pissing everybody off, I imagine. That is a really interesting, and I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Is you know that that they did backpedal extremely quickly, which I think yeah, right, that poured you know fuel fuel on that fire for everyone because I think you know those who were opposed to it, they just looked at that and said, hey, look, they didn't mean it to you know it was it was purely a commercial experiment. Which look, I'm sure it, oh, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but you know, yeah, I, I suspect it was very well intentioned. So yeah, I think there's a, a great lesson in there. You guys have done a lot of impact investing. Um, the Rainbow Laces campaign, uh, Paddy Power, the Virgin Atlantic, see the world differently. You know, talk about how you've you know maybe each of those. You know, how you've approached that. I guess how you've. I'd be interested to know how you sort of avoid those pitfalls of making sure that that feels authentic and right part of the organizational story and not just a, a bolted on feature. How did those uh, come about? And yeah, how have you maybe sort of worked to make those as authentic and real as possible? I mean, it's been baked into our sort of thinking from the start before purpose was really kind of a trendy thing. We, we set up to be a creative company for people on a mission. So that, that's how we described ourselves back then. We're still 10 years later, we're still, that's how we think of ourselves. And so we like working with people who really want to do something, change the world in some way. It doesn't have to be in a kind of big social, you know, sort of uh, way. It can just make a difference, you know. Going from number three to number one in the tea market is also a mission. It doesn't have to be some sort of super social sort of uh, mission. So we're always open-minded. We're interested. We, we'll meet most organizations. There might be a few that we just think, point blank, we're not going to meet these people because we don't agree with the way they do business. But, but sometimes we will at least have a, an initial conversation because what if they were wanting to change the way they do business? That'd be interesting. You know, if we took a, ba- a brand that had a bad record in a particular area, but was genuinely committed to change, that, that'd be like a really interesting piece. So you have to suss them out. You have to see how genuine they are. The first thing we ever worked on was Rainbow Laces. And that was, as you say, with Paddy Power. So you can imagine we gave them quite a, um, a hard look. You know, do you really, are you really, is this a genuine commitment or is it just a bit of a, you know, silly um, thing and and what we what we very quickly said with them was everyone's going to have this reaction with you as the same one that we have you know we're going to be suspicious of your motives so you need to partner up with Stonewall and so we connected them with Stonewall and we did it together and what was what was amazing and fair credit to both sides it was the most unlikely partnership you've ever, it's like you sort of introducing your parents or you know and your parents-in-law it was it was a, we had a horrendous first meeting when it was like such as chalk and cheese coming together and the next meeting was a bit better. And by the third meeting, everyone could see what the other party brought. You know, Stonewall could appreciate that this very laddie, you know, sort of blokey, football fanny sort of um, sensibility was something that they didn't have. So they needed that and they needed the reach of that and that understanding of that audience. And, and Paddy Power very much understood that they needed the, the genuine sort of commitment to the cause that Stonewall had that would prevent people just saying it was a bit of a 
Fantastic. So that was a really interesting learning um, throughout. It was, you know, then we did establish that we did have genuine commitment and that campaign has gone on for 10 years. We, we did the 10th anniversary of it last year for the World Cup. And Paddy Power actually did show the commitment in the end by, after a couple of years, I think this is really generous-minded of them, actually, by the way. They they realised that this whole thing was getting so so much bigger than them and more important than them. They took a back seat because they were going to get in the way. They would prevent it growing. So, they, so there was a lovely moment when tons and tons of brands wanted to get involved. At first, nobody wanted to. It was like a... It really was a bit of a taboo subject and all the football authorities you know, didn't want to have anything to do with it and they hated the fact there was Paddy Power and all the rest of it. And then, but by year two and certainly by year three, dozens of very big brands were getting involved. But but they, Paddy Power realised that it'd be better if they just took a very much a backseat and let it have organic sort of growth and become a, very much a stonewall thing, which is how it's been ever since. And so I think that, to me, that was a good commitment um, from the other part. Yeah, there's something sort of yeah quite powerful about them sort of handing that over. And uh, for anyone listening, that's you know maybe not aware, Paddy Power is a sort of a gambling online gambling um, company, which yeah explains what you meant there at the beginning. That sort of you know sort of an unlikely coming together of um, brands. And so, what about Virgin and and see the world differently, which actually just won an award I think recently for was it for diversity or they've won loads of awards this year. I, I think just most recently they won the Grand Prix at the Purpose Award. So this is what I mean about you know. If you're a truly purposeful brand, then um, absolutely go for it. And and Virgin has always been, you know, that amazing sort of challenger um, brand. And part of that spirit has always been a genuine commitment, for instance, to the LGBT community. They've, you know, just kind of a, a more sort of, I guess, liberal sensibility to, to life. They're kind of... Um, not stuck up, they're not stuffy, they're not conservative, you know, sort of, I don't mean politically, but just kind of, sort of culturally sort of thing there and have got a genuine commitment to diversity and inclusion. Uh, and that that's, you know, goes back for decades now. And the biggest business challenge, of course, for them was when we took the brief on was that they, you know, they'd, their planes had been on, you know, in hangars for two years and the business was, you know, mothballed. It was in, obviously quite incredible. Everyone's business was you know, affected, but you know the airlines were the worst affected. Well, the whole thing is terrible. So then they had to get back into the air, and they had to remind you know what, what were they going to say when they went back into the air, and how would they you know uh, attract uh, you know, flyers again, and also how would they regalvanize their staff? You know, many of whom had been furloughed, or how would they get new people? And and there was a huge problem amongst all airlines about getting if you think about the logistics of you don't, you don't just start an airline up the next day you've got to you've got to get people back into training um you know there's all sorts of rules about how long you've got to you know practice and you know put in those hard hours before you back up into the air and all that kind of, sort of stuff so a massive recruitment exercise and the airlines were really struggling uh you know because everyone's trying to recruit at the same time everyone had laid people off um we we wanted an idea that would work internally and externally. And the idea was see the world differently. So it's a good um a good expression of what Virgin's always tried to do. They've always, you know, been that challenger who's seen the world differently. Um and now, of course, we're all coming out of COVID and we're all, every one of us is seeing the world differently. The whole place has changed. So it was a nice kind of um, double meaning there. And then to bring it to life, the we put people at the forefront and you know, a very diverse group of people, and we just showcased the amazing brilliance of both virgins own people and flyers, you know, people who want to you know, do things a bit differently and not just fly the conventional sort of stuffy old flag carrier. And then you, again, you've got to back up with the action. So what we also did was 
um, we had to think about, okay, well, how can we see the world differently? One, one way to see the world differently now is to change the uniform policy so that it's not so rigid sort of gender boundaries. You know, there's a men's uniform and a women's uniform. There's much more sort of flexibility to choose within that. And, and so we did that. Uh, and then we celebrate that with a fashion runway on a runway. Um, and what about tattoos? You know, loads. There's a there's been an ongoing rule again, visible tattoos in the whole airline industry. Um, but it sort of seems a bit ridiculous now. But, you know, in in the cold light of day, you just think, well, that's there's so many people have tattoos, and it looks perfectly. Fine. So let's sort of change that rule. So so there was a series of um, policy decisions that we could then bring to life, and that that's when it all comes back to. That's when you're walking the walk and not just talking a good game about it. And so, how how did that play out with Virgin? I mean, I assume given it's won awards, it's sort of it, it's it's made a dent in you know whether it's recruiting or, of course, you know, hopefully commercial outcomes as well. Yeah, it's been hugely successful. I mean, they were inundated. I don't, I can't remember the exact figures off the top of my head, but they had the opposite problem of the whole of the rest of the industry. The rest of the industry were um, having to give people, you know, sort of signing on bonuses, and you know, were basically chucking money at people, and even that didn't help attract them um because uh, and and they had to cancel thousands tens of thousands of flights and you know losing millions of pounds you know because without without the staff obviously you can't get a plane up in the air so that, so that's why there was a whole year where british airways and various other airlines were cancelling enormous numbers of flights meanwhile virgin were had the opposite problem we had too many people wanted to um work with us and it was a nice problem to have it was you know so there was a sort of a we were inundated with applications because because it presents a nicer, especially in this new world that we're all working in, the idea of being me, myself, uh, and not having to conform to a script. You know, even a little thing. If, if you work for Virgin Atlantic, you're not given a script that you have to read out like you know, um, crew do in other places. You know, do, do your own thing within reason, but, you know, show your personality, be your own person. Mm. And, and people love that sort of atmosphere. And we're gravitating towards that dress how you like, do your own thing, chat how you like, bring your personality. That That's, you know, and a lot of people now have to think about their employer brands mm. as uh, just as much as their consumer brands because everyone's scrabbling after talent now, yeah, I think, across industries. I mean, I can totally understand. I mean, I've just uh, anecdotally got a friend who was a pilot and then, you know, three years on decided like, well, you know, stuff that, I'm going to go to something else. Um, so, I, I, you know, I can totally see that. And I think, yeah, that's a, it's a, again, it's sort of a fascinating look at like the power of, you know, these quite simple insights or ideas, you know, see the world differently. It, you know, sounds kind of basic, but you can see, or, or I think what is so fascinating is how that can then actually play out and drive real outcomes. That's it. It's it's a line. Okay, so it's, it, you could say, oh, it's an advertising slogan, but it's not really because it's it's it's, it's a line that is absolutely true. No, no, it's, it's like that comedians thing. When you hear that, a lot of people have said, which I think is a great um, sort of compliment in a way, is that that is a line that Virgin could have used at any point in their history, but they haven't. You know, so you get a sense of, oh my god, that is so true. That is that comedian's reaction. You know, that that, that I was talking about before. You think, I oh, see the world differently. That is exactly what Virgin Atlantic have always done. And of course, now it's got added meaning because we're all post COVID. And now it becomes this, every morning when I get up, whatever department of Virgin I work in, how can I see the world differently? And it gets, you know, it makes you think, everyone else does this, we're going to do that. Everyone else bans tattoos, we're going to allow tattoos. Everyone else has rigid uniforms, we're going to do this. Everyone's, you know, it just, it's always a good test. Are we seeing the world differently or are we just doing the same as everyone else? I think that's interesting. Interesting in a way, because I think there's a little bit of a red thread through this discussion, which is, you know, if you go back to proper and Yorkshire tea, you mentioned there somewhere that, you know, that was even a, a, a sort of a concept they had played with before. And, I, you know, I, I see a little bit of a parallel there, which is, you know, that that 
what was something they had tried before and obviously at Virgin could have been using that before. And even that technology discussion, which is, you know, not jumping on something new all of the time, but sort of, you know, not looking back because that sort of frames it in the wrong way, but sort of, I guess, you know, trying to be consistent. So, you know, we touched a little bit on controversial industries and, uh, you know, paddy power in, in gambling. Um, you know, how do you guys think, I mean, there's been a lot of talk on LinkedIn about the Shell account and, you know, there's been pieces in AdAge and AdWeek around, you know, is it ethical to pitch? You gave a little bit of an answer there with, you know, if a brand's looking to change, but how do you guys, you know, talk about, you know, for example, the Shell account or in any, I guess, sort of, you know, controversial industry, what, you know, what goes into a decision like that and, and how should agencies think about it? It's difficult, you know. I don't want to be all sort of moralistic, but you, you just have to find your own compass. You got to you got to understand that sometimes your feelings on these things are somewhat fuzzy. You know, they don't always make sense. You know, you you, you know sometimes logic goes out the window because you might find yourself sort of saying, "Okay, we will tolerate this sector, but not that sector," and someone could sort of say, "Oh, well, aren't they quite similar?" You know, but um, you just have to find your own compass, and then you importantly you have to. I feel like you've got to take your people with you, um, you know, because you might get a question, oh, why are we working with those guys? Have they? And and, and I, I think it comes down to your own integrity. We we turn down huge amounts of business because of the way that they run things. We also work with businesses who might have individual issues or, you know, because literally every company, including our own, has got something that they could be doing better, sometimes, sometimes a lot better. And rather than just be holier than them and say, right, we won't work with anyone, um, then generally I feel like you work with good companies, people who've got their hearts in the right place and people who want to change things for the better. And, and that might mean that you, you work with things that are not currently perfect, but you're trying to make a difference for them. So, yeah, we, we for instance, uh, Paddy Power was an example. We, we were certainly not looking for a betting company when we started up, but it was the fact that the conversation started with Rainbow Laces um, and then we've subsequently did things for Greenpeace with them and, and all sorts of other stuff. And now, actually, it's a nice full circle. We work with Gamble Aware, which is a kind of a more obvious organisation. Which is a, an organisation that, you know, raises awareness and... Yes, yes, exactly, and, and sort of addresses. It's not anti-gambling per se. I think that's kind of interesting. And I think I, we like their attitude because, like a lot of things in life, I mean, there are some things that are just like wrong full stop, but, you know, but their belief is, you know, gambling... You know, I, I gamble occasionally. I sort of put a flutter on the Grand National, or you know, but but there's a, that's a big difference from you know problematic gambling, and that's what um, sort of really needs to be addressed. So we work with alcohol brands. You know, there's some big issues around you know alcohol brands, but we think you know that's one of the enjoyable things in life as well, and we can present a, a sort of the positive sides of that responsibly. Uh, so you're always pretty much almost every new business request re- requires you to run the rule over that. And you just have to, you just have to feel. What do I feel comfortable with? And 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 we've just been lucky because we're we're never scared to turn down. We but before we even started, it was very helpful. This we got offered. Uh, I won't say their names, but it was a it was a it was a financial services company that 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 we didn't we we decided to meet because we hadn't started up yet. They were very keen. And we thought it might be one of these occasions where they wanted to change the way they worked. When we met them, it became clear there wasn't. And it, the business model was it felt quite predatory. You know, it was like a credit-based business. Um, and uh, even though they were going to give us this enormous amount of money without a pitch before we'd even started and it would solve all our, you know, 
we sort of said, no, we're not going to do that. It was a bit like a game show. They had a huge big bag of money, more or less, waving <laughs> at us. You could have this, you know, you could get the speedboat. And we sort of turned it down because we, we knew that we wouldn't be happy and we wouldn't, we're not motivated by money as an organization. We, you know, obviously we want to make money, but we're not, we're not just going to do any old crap, you know, because there's so many great opportunities to do good work for good brands and want to do good stuff in the world. Is it obvious when a brand's faking it in terms of the purpose or impact side? I mean, can you tell straight away? Yeah, yeah, we we do. We have these meetings, and we so we wouldn't do Shell, for instance. And again, not to um, be down on anyone who is sort of considering that, but that I feel like would be a, a red line for us. But if if it was an organisation that was, you know, somewhat less clear cut for our purposes, we'd have a meeting and we'd have a coffee and we'd sort of be very frank with them about their potential challenges um, and and issues and you know, and then see what they had to say. And, and you can tell. And then and then we. And then we'll just sort of say no. We say no to a lot of those. We, we might say yes to the initial conversation, but we we pull out of a lot of or, or sort of decline politely. And, and again, we try not to be pious about it or overly worthy, but it's just not right for us. So, but we are always interested in people who genuinely, and you, you can tell it. We always sort of talk about them leaning forward and just sort of, you know, um, and we felt it from that Paddy Power client was a guy called Christian Wolfenden. And we really looked him in the eye and he proved true to his word. He, he was committed to that. It wasn't just a stunt, a one-off stunt. It was a, what has now become a 10-year campaign against homophobia in sports. So we thought, right, we believe you. Mm, as, as someone I'll have to reach out to, I think. Um, Andy, I could sit and talk all day and share, you know, dig into the war stories, but I'm conscious of your time. So I'd love to move on to the quick fire round and start with a, a tricky one, which is your favorite marketing campaign of all time, any era, any brand. I mean, I love Guinness. I think what they've done over the years has been amazing. I, I particularly love the good things come to those who wait. But I think just generally to take what is potentially quite a niche brand to the number one uh, beer brand in the UK, I think is pretty phenomenal. That's wild, isn't it? You know, especially given, I guess, you know, I, you know, I love Guinness, but I'm assuming it's sort of a, you know, it's a acquired taste for many. So Yeah, ex- exactly. It's phenomenal. And to do that over so many decades of great advertising, it's, it's incredible. So the question I wanted to ask was, who's the best brand? But I might rephrase that on the fly to the most interesting brand in the world right now. And I guess we all know the obvious ones, the Apples and the Nikes. But who, you know, what's a brand that you're sort of loving to watch and witness at the moment? Obviously, outside of all of our own, because we're not allowed to have favourite children. I mean, Patagonia are pretty amazing, aren't they? I feel like they've, again, walked the walk. They don't just talk a good game. And they're, I feel like they're on a different level in terms of being commercially successful but also you know genuinely driven by purpose rather than just pretending to play at it so i mean you can't walk much of a bigger walk than giving it all away can you so what's the most overrated trend in marketing right now what's something that you're sick of hearing about um well it's probably what i mentioned before it's it's sort of spurious ai which is not to um say that ai is not going to be absolutely revolutionary which it is and 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 i sort of cut everyone a bit of slack from playing with a new toy because you know that's what we all do but it's there's just so much of it is um, is rubbish, you know. Just just um, it's about what we can do rather than what we should do. So yeah, amazing that you can do that, but it's it's not probably going to make any big difference now. Yeah, it's it's I don't know twelve thirteen episodes into this, and I think that's come up literally every time. So either we're all either we're all wrong or uh, we're all wrong. Or yeah. I mean, as like I say, it's unbelievably powerful, but um, the fiddling around things that people are doing with it now, you know, maybe that will help us get to the bigger solutions. Maybe that's a more charitable view of it. But Yeah. Look, I think it'll be a tool like 
TikToks at all and, you know, billboards are at all. Um, so what about the opposite? What's the most underrated trend? What's sort of, you know, what's ignored or um, marginalized or forgotten in terms of marketing tactics? Oh, God, that's interesting. I think one would be, this is going to sound like stating the obvious, but I think that is what perhaps is at the heart of the question is long-term campaign ideas. For as long as I've been in the industry, that's always been the holy grail, but they, they are few and far between these days. There's, you know, there's, again, there's a lot of chopping and changing because people are chasing after the latest fads. So I, I think something as simple as as, as coming up with a, a long-term brand platform and then sticking to it and not just changing it the, the minute a new CMO comes in or a new agency comes in. And what's interesting, I feel, there's a little theme recently in the UK. There's been a couple of revivals of long-running campaigns. So just last week, the retailer Morrison's came back with a line that's about 40 years old, but it's the best line for Morrison's. There's more reasons to shop at Morrison's. And you will never beat that line. So don't move away from that probably ever. It, it can obviously flex with times and all the reasons will change. That I applaud that. Um, and we, we shouldn't always be trying to reinvent the wheel. Sometimes that is a great, you've got a great property. You should just uh, stick with it. Yeah. And I mean, it, you know, I guess the, you know, distinctive brand assets and, you know, System One put out a report recently, or I guess it wasn't a report. It was something that I guess lots of people know, which is, you know, we give up on ads and campaigns far quicker than consumers. We look at things a hundred times a day and you get sick of them, but, you know, the consumer might not have even noticed it yet. And it's funny, I saw one of one of these uh, sort of engagement bait things on LinkedIn recently, which was, but it was quite interesting. It was looking at the Coca-Cola logo. And I think, you know, it sounds trite to say it, but it, it is actually fascinating that they've never changed it. I know they tweak parts of it all of the time, but in an era where like, you know, every luxury brand has redone their logo, I mean, to think they haven't actually changed that typeface in, I don't know how many years. I mean, th that, that should be commended, I think. Yeah, exactly. And there's probably lots of design rules that it, that it breaks, you know, and it, it maybe, you know, it's kind of that swirly font and all the rest of it is probably bad. And lots of it's as uncool as you can get, isn't it? Like, uncool and it perhaps is you know requires more space and it could be you know maybe how, how does it show up digital all that kind of stuff but it's i think uh, brands like that and companies like that are to be applauded for sometimes the hardest thing is just to hold your nerve and build on those assets and rather than just try and rip everything up people sort of sometimes worry about that being an absence of a decision but that is in itself a very brave and powerful decision some of the time yeah i mean i think you know the easiest thing as a new cmo is to come and you know get a new agency, rip everything apart and start again. I think that's um, very true. Uh, last question, Andy, who should I have on the show next? Who, who are the interesting people in the world and the industry I should be should be speaking to? Uh, I've got two, I think. Um, one's, one's close to home, so this might be a bit of a cheat, but somebody, um, not Lucky Generals, but we've, we've got a, a company in our group called Dark Horses, and the, the chief exec is a, an incredible woman called Melissa Robertson. I've worked with her, again, for decades on and off, and she... I think she's really interesting because she's just a brilliant business person um, and, and currently, she's worked in advertising most of her life, has gone into a sports, you know, marketing job, um, you know, sport being a very macho profession, obviously, and she's absolutely rocking it, you know, um, uh, and built an amazing team, been very successful, they just sold to Omnicom. And on top of all of that, she's just a really powerful advocate for all sorts of other important things in society like the menopause she's really been at the forefront of that so she's just an all-around interesting brilliantly commercial great creative powerful sort of cultural sort of thinker so she's great uh, and then my other one would be um not connected to me at all although i really admire her um is a woman called shani mears who's um from the elephant um group and she's just phenomenal 
you know, a young woman of colour. I've met her a few times and she, I found her one of the most inspirational and brilliant and down-to-earth but powerful, persuasive people. She's the sort of person you meet her for, but I feel like um, I've been, my batteries have been charged up after, you know, you come away just thinking, oh, she's incredible sort of thing. So um, I strongly recommend you uh, chat to her if you get a chance. And just to come back to sport for a moment, I think it, it is such a fascinating time for sport. I've had a couple of conversations so far, given just how much, you know, sport and sort of the landscape is changing with drive to survive and, you know, short form cricket and, you know, all of the all of the different sort of trends that are changing sports. So I'll definitely have to reach out to, uh, to Melissa as well. Um, Andy, thanks so much for being on the show. I really enjoyed that. Thank you. Really enjoyed it too. Yeah, we could have gone all, on all day, but um, yeah, really, really lovely to talk to you. We'll have you back for another one soon. Cheers. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for listening to the On The Moment podcast. If you liked this episode, make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss upcoming episodes. And to suggest a guest or provide feedback, please visit our dedicated podcast hub at ownthemomentpod.com 